This is an IPA studio production. Title 35 of the United States Code, Section 103, mandates that a patent not be given when the differences between the subject matter sought to be patented and the prior art are such that the subject matter as a whole would have been obvious at the time of the invention was made to a person having ordinary skill in the art. Howdy, I'm your host Preston Morgan, and you're listening to Skilled in the Art. Skilled in the Art is brought to you by Intellectual Property Aggies, a student group at Texas A&M University School of Law filled with students aspiring to be IP attorneys. This episode is part of our Business Formal series where we sit down with professors and practitioners and hear their take on the big issues of IP. You met Professor Vishnabad on the last episode. A professor at Texas A&M University's School of Law, he has a focus on patent law and previously worked at the USBTO. The federal government is filled with different administrative bodies, like the EPA, the SEC, the FCC, and a great deal of others. The agency we're talking about today is the USPTO, the United States Patent and Trademark Office. They're in charge of things like granting patents. So we start off simply with, is the USPTO special? There's some exceptionalism in patent law that could be explained as, yeah, it's, it's special and unique the way everybody else uh, is special and unique in their field. But patent law is different uh, historically from other bodies of law uh, that interact with the, the modern administrative state uh, because the the patent office, in the sense of this bureaucratized agency where you know legal judgments are made, uh, the patent office predates the modern Administrative Procedure Act and and the modern administrative state by over a hundred years. Wow. So, 1836, Congress passes the Patent Act um, uh, and reintroduces substantive examination right. where you're not just granting patents and we'll figure out if they're valid later on if there's a lawsuit. Mm-hmm. Uh, they're doing an ex-ante, a beforehand look at whether the invention that's sought to be patented here is in fact patentable in all the ways that the law requires. So that agency setting was created in 1836 and then the modern uh, APA of course wasn't passed until the 1940s. So that's really when, you know, we got agencies like the, uh, what we now know, you know, Securities and Exchange Commission, the Environmental Protection Agency, and so on. So these bodies of, of modern administrative law are all governed by this common framework. And as it happens, they also cover patent law. In theory, they're supposed to cover patent law as well, but patent law has this additional century of, of custom and baggage and right. just habit that's, uh, that's tough to break into. And it's tough to break into in part because you don't just have to be a lawyer to dig into the, the recesses of the patent office. You also have to be a scientist or an engineer yeah. to get a job as an examiner, to do a lot of things in, in patent law. Now, a lot of those things don't require a science or engineering background, but a lot of them do. Mm-hmm. And so it's just one more barrier to entry. And it's a reason that patent law has been insulated from other areas of law of which administrative law is one. Yeah. Uh, so is is patent law the only one that uh, area that's you know in this kind of position where they were established before? 
It's the only one that uh, that I'm aware of that's been so isolated and so historically yeah. idiosyncratic. Um, I'm sure you could find you know other examples where one or two of those attributes are true, but mm. uh, patent law really is sort of a field apart. And it's one of the reasons so much energy is being devoted now in the last 15, 20 years uh, to changing that. Yeah. Because scholars of administrative law and scholars of patent law mm-hmm. have realized that there's this sort of exceptional treatment. And yeah. whenever that happens in the law, the natural question is, well, why? And is it justified? Yeah. And some, the question of why is really interesting as an historical study. Right. But the question of is it justified is where really you know, people start to, yeah. to have really strong and, and vigorous disagreements. And that's where, where the fun research is. Yeah. So, so what do you think? Well, I think that uh, for the most part, the Supreme Court, to the extent that uh, it has waded into this issue at all, has said pretty clearly that patent law should not be exceptional Mm -hmm. uh, unless a very strong justification can be given. And it's got to be more than history, right, this justification. So um, I think in the area of administrative law, there are qualities of the patent system that are different in kind not just different in degree okay. than your run-of-the-mill securities dispute or, or environmental dispute. And so those things may require a different administrative framework to deal with them. But the relationship between the agency and the court, you know, in, in terms of judicial review of, of agency action, um, the patent office is an agency with technical expertise, just like the Environmental Protection Agency is an agency with technical expertise. And the extent to which judges who are insulated from, from political accountability and, and those sorts of forces are going to defer to a politically active, politically accountable agency of the executive branch that also has technical expertise. Uh, that, that issue isn't really all that different in patent law than it is in any other area of administrative law. So I think there are differences at the margin that we should take account of, but the big questions... Uh, it's it's not all that different a question for patent law. All agencies have certain powers given to them. So next, we explore if those powers given to the USPTO are any different than those typically given to any other agency. The question is whether they're allowed to engage in substantive rulemaking versus procedural rulemaking. That's one distinction. Okay. And then there's the question of you know whatever rules they do make, um, how much deference are those rules supposed to get from courts? So, I mean, I can sit in my office and make rules all day long, but no court is going to defer to them. Uh, so the, the real question isn't just what the patent office can do and does do, but uh, how what the patent office does as an agency is treated by other parts of the legal system, the patent system, uh, and the government. So Congress, when it sees the agency doing something, can choose to... Uh, legislate around it and say, no, we don't like what you're doing. We're going to pass a new law. More often, what they do as a practical matter is say, no, we're not going to change the law. That requires a lot of legislative effort and committee work and all that. Uh, We're just going to haul you into uh, a congressional hearing and dangle your budget over your head and uh, (laughs) demand an explanation. And that's a powerful, pragmatic tool that Congress can use. Um, Now, the courts, of course, are only going to deal with this when it comes before them in this concrete sort of case or controversy. So their perspective is much more detailed, but also much more limited. And that's part of the design of our our constitutional system. 
the the one area in which a growing amount of research is is now taking place, but not a lot has been done historically in any systematic way for the patent system, is that, look, it's part of the executive branch. So the director of the patent office is an undersecretary of commerce who answers to the secretary of commerce, who answers to the president. So if you want something done, talk to the agency's boss's boss. Yeah. And you know, the president can step in and do a lot. The White House and, and cabinet official level, uh, cabinet level officials can do a lot mm-hmm. to steer the direction of the agency where, where they want it to go. Yeah. And those are forces that exist. I mean, any fifth grader can tell you that. But uh, how it's exercised and how uh, well theorized that power is, is just now starting to enter the, the realm of patent research. Since there may be more power for the president to use, I ask if these issues are driven by political parties. Not really. I mean, at the, there may be partisan disputes about funding and mm-hmm. you know, uh, agency appointment, but that's yeah. politics with a, with a little p right. in terms of trying to, whoever the, the executive uh, branch is in control by, if it's the, uh, the one party, then the other party is going to want to hold up their nominations for whatever reason. That's not really politics in the sense of political philosophy. But the the main question for the patent system is how an agency interacts with other parts of the system, whether it's uh, other parts of the executive branch, the, the courts, or, or the Congress, um, and how those interactions affect the incentives of people who are doing the things that the patent system wants them to do, which is create new innovations, commercialize them, and hopefully uh, someday make people's lives better with these, uh, whether it's by creating jobs, whether it's by right. you know, making a, a better iPhone, whatever. Mm-hmm. So answering those questions requires a lot of information. And I would like to think facts are a nonpartisan uh Creature, but um, yeah, a lot of it, a lot of that research is has got to be empirical, yeah. and obviously, empirical research, as you may know, is a big part of my research. So, yeah. um, so, so that's what kind not of, really partisan uh, in any yeah. meaningful way. I don't think. Right. Uh, so, so what kind of research do you uh, needs to be done to answer these kind of questions? Well, so there are two pieces of it. One is what kind of data do we need, and then mm-hmm. the other thing is what kind of questions do we need to answer. Right. Um, the big questions of patent law have always been and will probably continue to be, to what extent does the incentive of a patent drive someone to invent something mm-hmm. that she wouldn't otherwise have invented? Mm-hmm. The patent is always available uh, for, say, a mechanical invention. If somebody looks at that possibility and says, man, I really want that patent, and I see this problem that's you know n- that needs to be solved, uh, the, the brakes on everybody's cars are, are not as good as they could be. I know there's got to be a better way. And so they go out and invent a new brake uh, pedal. And then they try to get a patent for it. Mm-hmm. Okay, If that person would not have made the brake, the improved brake technology, without the patent, then we can say, okay, the patent is a necessary inducement, a necessary incentive. But if the mechanic just likes to tinker for fun and would have made it anyway and would just put it out there in the world... Um, and they try to make money on it after the fact. Mm-hmm. That's a different story with respect to what the incentive function of the patent is. And still different is 
uh, a lot of research takes place in universities, right? Yeah. People like me, but much, much smarter and doing things like uh, clean water technology or bio, you know, medical research and that's, that sort of thing. So if they're engaging in research and that research can be patented, um, that doesn't necessarily mean that they're doing it for the patent. They're yeah. university researchers. They're doing it for the grant funding. They're doing it because that's how you get tenure. Sometimes you get a Nobel Prize. Hmm. You know, you get a, a law of nature named after you. Maybe you walk into a bar and everybody knows your name. These reputational considerations. Yeah. So people do things. They, they innovate. They do research. They create knowledge for a variety of reasons, only one of which is potentially patent law. So then the question becomes, well, okay, patents may or may not help, but what's the harm if we grant a patent? Yeah. And so there's a variety of potential harms that the patent could inflict on other people, just as there are a variety of benefits that a patent can confer on the owner. And the empirical questions we have to answer are, uh, ultimately, they boil down to, do the costs outweigh the benefits? Mm -hmm. to, to answer that, you need to know, okay, can we calculate the costs? Can we cal calculate the benefits? Yeah. And for that, you need data on human behavior, on how organizations operate, how people allocate their priorities and their resources when they're doing research, and how each of those things uh, differs, whether you're in a university setting, a small you know, garage startup or independent inventor versus the lab of a large vertically integrated company like AT&T or IBM. Mm -hmm. So each of those things is a huge set of empirical questions and you can only do sort of a little bit at a time. So it's very uh, careful and incremental and a little bit slow. Yeah. But uh, when, the, when the pieces start coming together, when you put all that research together, you can answer some pretty powerful questions. Yeah. So is this something that you're doing? It is something I'm doing, yeah. I focus uh, right now primarily on the administrative apparatus of the, the Patent Office, mm -hmm. Patent Trial and Appeal Board, where patents that were previously granted and uh, you know their, their validity and their, their quality as patents is in question. If there is that kind of question, Patent Trial and Appeal Board allows you to come in and say, okay, here's a patent whose validity is suspect. I want to... I want to take it through the ringer a second time, and we'll see if the patent office screwed up by granting it. Now, right. in theory, that's a potentially useful tool because patents that shouldn't have been granted, well, now they don't have to be enforced anymore. But of course, by making it easy to invalidate patents that are bad, you also have to make it easy to invalidate patents that are good. You can't tell the difference beforehand. If you could tell the difference, we wouldn't need the whole reevaluation process. Yeah. Right. So, again, we come back to unintended consequences and what effects it's actually having as compared to what effects Congress was trying to accomplish. So, hmm. that's a lot of data. That's a lot of empirical research, and and that's the research I'm doing right now. Scholars such as our guests do all this great research, but what effect does this research have? Well, uh, ideally, a lot of people will read it, and at least some large number of them will understand it mm -hmm. and, and sort of see that the thing that I'm trying to prove is, in fact, persuasively proven. Um, it really depends on the audience of each paper. Some papers are written with 
practitioners in mind, lawyers, practicing lawyers. Because right. um, one of the ways in which things change in our country is people bring high-profile lawsuits whose facts are sort of carefully chosen uh, so that when you litigate it, the proper question will come before the, mm. the appeals court or uh, the Supreme Court if it gets that far. And then the question that they answer on the basis of those facts will change the legal environment in which we all operate. And that's the change that, that the lawyers wanted to make uh, in the first place. So if my research can introduce new facts into the conversation, empirical research when it's done well, uh, tells us something about the world that we didn't already know. Mm-hmm. And that can be a powerful tool in, in helping frame a court's decision and changing a court's mind if you're trying to overturn a precedent or steer the law in a different direction. Um, in addition to new facts, you could also try to change the conventional wisdom directly within the paper and say, look, here's a conclusion that my co-authors and I come to or that I come to in this paper and a lot of other people in their papers have come to. And these conclusions are in tension with uh, the, the prevailing wisdom, the conventional wisdom of the field. And if that's the case, then you better have persuasive arguments. But once you've shown that, if a court reads that paper and gets persuaded by it, or if lawyers read that paper and get persuaded by it, then maybe they'll just take that as direct evidence that, look, here's a persuasive argument in favor of changing the status quo, changing the conventional wisdom as we know it, and and moving on from there. So it can be as dramatic as that, or it can be as incremental as just an empirical finding we assume all sorts of things about how the world works when we make arguments and really evaluating those assumptions and testing them. And sometimes they turn out to be true and that's useful to know. And sometimes they turn out to be false and that's even more useful to know. But either way, if you're sort of adding new facts, adding new premises that Mm -hmm. have been validated in a meaningful way to the discussion, then courts can be a great audience for that work. Now, a different audience may be the political branches. Congress, when they're holding hearings, they'll want testimony from experts. And uh, a number of my my co-authors and colleagues in patent law have testified before congressional committees and subcommittees about things on which they're expert. In the executive branch, you often have uh, agency roundtables. Really well-known professors often get hired by... Uh, agencies and cabinet departments as advisors. So uh, I mentioned you know, the, the chief economist of the patent office, the first chief economist mm-hmm. um, who, who hired me out of law school. He had been on the business faculty at Georgia Tech and was brought in as a chief economist for a two-year appointment, and he got renewed for a third. And then after it was done, he went back. Right, So he was on leave from the university, went back there, and while he was at the agency, he brought a very academic sensibility, a very yeah. sort of scholarly way of understanding things that not a lot of career employees and agencies have. So it's a good injection of fresh perspective and academic rigor um, that can be a good counterbalance to some of the more political and, and pragmatic considerations that agency employees deal with on a daily basis. Right. So... Uh so the research that you said that you're you're doing right now, what are you uh, what are you seeing so far? Well, so uh, I had a paper come out in the Berkeley Tech Law Journal uh, earlier this year. It was with two co-authors, Artie Rye, who is a uh, a professor at Duke, 
and who was previously my advisor when I was a fellow mm-hmm. at that law school, and Jay Kaysen, who's a professor at the University of Illinois. And the, the great thing that all three of us have in common, other than that we're you know, big, big geeks for patent law, um, is that we've all served in the, in the patent office before. So I was there as an advisor in the chief economist's office. Professor Rye was there as the chief policy officer um, at the beginning of President Obama's first term. And Professor Kaysen was there as a distinguished visiting scholar. There's a program called the, the Edison Scholars Program the agency has uh, for bringing in high-profile academics and just putting them to work on, on the policy priorities that the agency has. Just advise us on this. What do you think? And they make their data available. They make their sort of internal discussions available. And they get these very smart, very experienced people to advise them, mm-hmm. which is, uh, I think, a great use of, of human capital. So all three of us have a lot of familiarity with how the agency really works in practice. And so when we go in to do empirical research, the data that we see and collect is really informed by that uh, that background understanding. And that can make a big difference in how you interpret findings. And you know, multiple plausible stories can account for this data. Mm-hmm. Some of them we know are probably not true, and some of them are more likely to be true because we have that context from our experience there. So we published that paper. Uh, had a lot of data in it. And... It got uh, picked up to be adapted into a book chapter um, in a book on the law and economics of intellectual property. Right, So that's one great impact right there. It's part yeah. of a book that people are going to read, mm-hmm. and it'll put our work into a broader context. Yeah. Uh, another great outcome that we had, another great impact that we had, was there was a case before the Supreme Court uh, called Quozo v. Lee, and it was about this... Uh, this administrative reevaluation that takes place in the Patent Trial and Appeal Board. Mm-hmm. And there was some question about how that should be conducted, the rules by which it's conducted. The statute had an ambiguity in it. The Patent Office interpreted it one way. And the question was, was the agency's interpretation uh, reasonable? Should it get deference? Or can courts just do what they like uh, regardless? And so in order to answer that question in the Supreme Court, a number of parties, aside from the litigants themselves, a number of uh, amici curiae, right, friends of the court, filed briefs saying, well, empirical research suggests that X, Y, and Z, right? And in particular, it was the relationship between uh, people who used to file their, their disputes in court and try to figure out patent validity questions in court uh, rather than going to the agency and now After the America Invents Act was passed in 2011, a lot of people go into the agency instead of going to court. And that was really the subject of our paper, uh, this sort of substitutability between the agency setting and the court setting. So people said, well, according to to research, 70% of cases that are brought in the agency are defensive responses to infringement litigation that's been filed in the courts. And that's good. That's how it's supposed to be. That's why the the PTAB was created and constituted the way it was. Mm -hmm. But 30%, which is a pretty substantial minority, uh, don't take place in this very defensive posture. They're preemptive strikes. Mm -hmm. So this is where somebody is filing to have a patent invalidated, but they have not yet been sued for infringing the patent. Maybe they see that the patent is just out there and could be a problem, so they sue preemptively in the agency. Or maybe they see, okay, the patent owner is suing somebody else, one of my rivals. But you know, if they go after them, they could come after me tomorrow. 
So the patent owner is at least to that extent uh, tipped her hand, and now we're going to use that information to figure out a strategy to invalidate the patent. So this kind of preemptive strategic behavior is not the majority, but a substantial minority of cases, and that needs to be accounted for. So that was one of the key findings from our paper. And a lot of people were interested in how those, those strategic effects worked out. So they cited our paper in their briefs to the Supreme Court. And we had you know, some material in that paper about how current disputes, including the Cozo case, uh, would, uh, well, not would come out, but should come out. Mm-hmm. We had our, our arguments in that regard. But the more important thing for people reading was what facts do you have? Your arguments, your opinions, your conclusions, uh, we can agree with them or disagree with them. But the facts that you've revealed to us are interesting no matter whether we agree or disagree. If we agree, it's ammunition for our shared argument. If it's, uh, you know, if we disagree, then your facts are something I will have to account for. Yeah. But either way, we get cited, right? And then uh, a couple of months after those briefs were filed, uh, there was a Federal Circuit case. So, you know, once the Supreme Court cite, but a Federal Circuit opinion cited to our paper. And it was for the proposition that, you know, these things are done very strategically and, uh, and we need to take account of that if we're going to answer the question that was presented in that case uh, a certain way. It was a concurring opinion, so it's, I guess, better than being cited in a dissent, but not quite as good as being cited in a majority opinion. <laughs> Professors keep track of this stuff, right? So, <laughs> to what extent did I help make the law with my research? We're going to take a quick break. While you wait, here's a message from the co-director of CLIP, Megan Carpenter. Do you like rock music? Yeah. Yeah. Do you like trademarks? Yeah. Then come make Texas A&M School of Law history and watch the slants at Lola's. Yeah. Oh, yeah. It's Monday, April 10th from 7 to 10. Starting off with a Q&A panel and free drinks from 7 to 8. It's also free admission. So see you there. We left off last time talking about the preemptive measures that can be taken by the PTAB, which is the Patent Trials and Appeal Board. But can you take those same measures in district court? And what about standing? You can get a sort of same, a similar type of preemptive strike in court under the Declaratory Judgment Act. Okay. And you can seek a declaration that the patent is invalid. Mm-hmm. But as you said, there are standing requirements for that. So you need to be either practicing the patent already and therefore subject to a, uh, a lawsuit for infringement, or you need to be um, interested in practicing the patent with sufficient immediacy. And the only reason you're abstaining is because you don't want to get sued. If you go ahead and violate the patent and get sued, then yeah, you've created standing for yourself. Right. But if you don't want to get sued, then you have to demonstrate, well, I would do this tomorrow, today. Hmm but for the threat of this patent hanging over my head, right? So if you can show that, then you've got standing and you can seek a declaratory judgment. Um, It is tough to do in a lot of cases. And in the case of the Patent Trial and Appeal Board, in validating these patents through the administrative agency process, there is no standing requirement. Yeah. Okay, and that's by design. The Congress wanted to make it very easy for people who have a sort of legitimate uh, gripe about this to be able to get their day in the agency at least. And so there's no standing requirement there. So as a result, 
who is challenging a patent if not the people who want to use the invention? Well, for one thing, in situations like um, high technology, you know, if it's uh, um, digital components in cell phones, uh, wireless technology, these sorts of things, uh, it could be a trade association. It's not one company or one individual, but a consortium that represents the interests of an entire industry. Okay. Um, they may not be able to meet the standing requirements under Article 3 for a declaratory judgment suit, but under the, the administrative agency setting, they can go in and do whatever they like. Right? Um, another situation that comes up, in the, and this is in the field of medicine primarily, is if there's a patent on a medical invention, a diagnostic invention, let's say, a doctor would certainly be able to, to go in and say, look, I would practice this diagnostic technique but for the threat of the patent. Yeah. So standing might be tough to get, but it's not inconceivable. What about researchers in medicine, though? Right, if they want to do research, it's not clear whether they would infringe or not. And research consortia, uh, public interest groups, who want to see research done but don't have a sufficient legal or financial stake in the dispute are not going to be able to get standing under Article 3 because right. they're, they're sort of far enough removed from it. Mm -hmm. But they have at least sort of uh, morally or uh, philosophically or ideologically, they have a stake in, in the outcome of the case and the shape of the law. So it's just not a stake that standing doctrine recognizes. And so for them... The Patent Trial and Appeal Board is a great forum because they are now uh, permitted to step into the agency process in a way that they would probably never have been able to step in to, to court. So at the margin, it makes a big difference for them, but uh, it may not make as big a difference for, for others. We talked a bit before about how one of the questions surrounding the USPTO is what kind of deference they should receive. How do you answer a question like that? Well, so under ordinary principles of administrative law, an agency that has substantive rulemaking authority, which is one of the ways in which Congress can authorize an agency to speak with the force of law, right? That's the magic language. If you have the authority as an agency to speak with the force of law on this subject, then the courts should give you deference. Yeah. And what should they give you deference on? It's particularly the interpretation of what the law is and rules about what the law ought to be and how it ought to be applied. So when you are an agency and you make these sorts of pronouncements that, in the case of patent law, let's take the example of, uh, of non-obviousness. Every single time that the patent office, through one of its examiners, grants a patent, what they're doing is making a statement about the law of obviousness. Mm -hmm. Okay, And it's a very small statement. All they're doing is applying the laws that exist to a particular invention. But the fact that they're saying, look, this invention is not obvious, tells us something about what it means in the grand sense uh, for an invention to be obvious or not obvious. So we could take the example of a particular application for a patent being granted as a statement on the law of non-obviousness. If it's something that a lot of people would have thought, no, I don't think that's not obvious. And it turns out the patent office says, oh, no, we think it is. Then it may be a particularly dramatic statement because it you know, defies expectations in, in such a big way. But it's unlikely to happen. It's possible to happen. But either way, because the patent office has not historically been granted the authority to speak with the force of law 
on what the substantive requirements for patentability ought to be, well, they don't have that authority, then the courts are not going to, uh, they're not going to defer mm-hmm. to the patent office, at least with respect to those initial determinations that an invention is patentable or is not patentable. After the America Invents Act was passed in 2011, this new trial-type proceeding in the PTAB uh, was created, and that's where patents that were previously valid or previously issued uh, and presumed valid could come could be brought back in for reevaluation. And there was uh, sort of a growing consensus among at least administrative law scholars who study the patent system that there probably should be some measure of deference given. To the patent office in those situations yeah. where they engage in this administrative adjudication. They still don't have rulemaking authority on substantive patent requirements. They only have procedural authority. But if they're making you know, decisions about the validity of already issued patents and are applying the requirements of patentability in such a direct and salient way, that they probably should get uh, some sort of deference on that. And the, the Federal Circuit seems to uh, be taking that idea at least somewhat seriously. So, you know, that, that part of the, the relationship between the agency and the courts is changing. But your original question was, where do we go and where should we go? Right. And it really boils down to what would the court be deferring to the agency about? Would it be about interpretations of law? Would it be about judgments pertaining to uh, technological facts? Would it be about judgments pertaining to economic facts or other things? Right. So on law, you, you, we have a, a very, well, I was going to say a very clear doctrine. We have a very well-established doctrine yeah. um, about when and how uh, courts should defer to agencies. And we also have a fairly well-established doctrine on how they should uh, defer to agency adjudications of fact. Mm-hmm. Right? It's the arbitrary and capricious standard uh, in informal uh, rulemaking and substantial evidence in formal uh, adjudications. So we could just say that's the rule and leave it at that. Just sort of let the system sort itself out. But the Patent Office has a lot of expertise on technology and technological facts. So it makes sense to give them a lot of discretion Uh, and to defer to them a lot when it comes to technology. Sure. But the Federal Circuit's not your ordinary court of appeals, right? This is a court that sees all the patent cases in the country. Mm -hmm. Ever since 1982 when it was created. And it's the only U.S. court of appeals that's defined not by geography but by subject matter. So Federal Circuit judges have a lot of expertise on patent law, just like the agency does. They have a lot of expertise on science and technology. A lot of the judges have... uh, advanced degrees in the natural sciences and engineering disciplines. Mm -hmm. So if what we're concerned about is institutional competence on science and technology, well, yeah, the agency's got that, but uh, does the federal circuit need to defer to them? If they can make make up their own minds, uh, if they're capable of making up their own minds on questions of technological fact, should they be allowed to do that? That's Mm -hmm. an an open question. And then there's the even more... uh, sort of salient question that's now becoming uh, part of the discussion, economic facts. Because patents are fundamentally economically oriented rights. What you can do is exclude others from making or selling or using the invention. So if it has an economic effect 
And at least for the last six years, Patent Office has had an office of, of the chief economist. Uh, should we enlarge that office? A lot of scholars propose having a full-on Bureau of Economic Analysis in the Patent Office, just like we have in the Federal Trade Commission, just like we have in the Antitrust Division of the Justice Department, um, so that the agency gains sufficient institutional expertise in economics. And once you have that expertise, there's something else that you can get deference on. Right now, I, I think the, the office of the chief economist uh, isn't sufficiently large that economic expertise should be deferred upon by the courts. But that doesn't have to stay you know, as it is now. It could change. It could grow. Yeah. And one more thing to, to fight about deference. Who would change that? Well, it could be changed by Congress. Congress could say, hire more economists. Mm-hmm. You know, take your office of chief economist and turn it into a bureau of economic analysis. Right. Um, it could just be the agency. The, the director of the patent office uh, could decide uh, that I want more economists working for me. I want more academic economists. I want more econometricians, more statisticians. Right now, it's probably about a dozen people total. Right? If you include detailees and uh, other agency employees who are, who are working temporarily for the chief economist's office, I think my last count has them at about a dozen people. Mm. But you could increase that by a factor of 10. And still not uh, have enough economists for the courts to be satisfied. Because there are 9,000 patent examiners in the agency. Wow. So you know, if you had 120 economists working round the clock on the economic impacts of patents, uh, all the patents that the agency grants, yeah. you still wouldn't necessarily make the biggest dent. Now, of course, economists work and statisticians work in terms of aggregate numbers. And... Of all the hundreds of thousands of applications that the agency gets and the tens of thousands of patents that issue every year, only a small fraction of them are worth anything in the economic sense. So if you can identify those and focus in on them, maybe we can can make a, a bigger claim for agency expertise on economic impact. But the changes would have to be big. They would have to be sustained. And the agency, at the end of the day, would have to ask for deference, right? right? In a case before the Federal Circuit or the Supreme Court or, or anybody else, the agency's lawyers, not only would the conditions for deference have to exist, but the agency's lawyers would have to affirmatively say, we are entitled to deference in this regime, in this domain, because we've got all these you know, new institutional facts. And that's a potentially political... Uh, choice for the agency to make. And they may not want to spend their political capital in that way. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, lots of things have to happen. A lot of sort of uh, circumstances have to change and a lot of choices have to be made in order for, for that deference question to be answered in the way that we're talking about. That's it for this week's episode of Skilled in the Art. Special thanks go out to Professor Vishnabot for being on the show today. Thanks go out to IT at the law school, Braxton Bragg, Jonathan Minasana, Stuart Campbell, Alex Collins, and Vince Vela. Intro is a mashup of Supreme Court audio from OEA.org and music from Pease on SoundCloud. Saxophone is by our very own Matt Pellegrino. Send questions and comments to ipapodcast at gmail.com. And follow us on Twitter at IPAggies. 
We'll be back in two weeks for a special business formal episode with Professor Carpenter. This has been an IPA Studio production. I'm your host, Preston Morgan. Thanks for listening.